Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Pop Doctrine. My name is Tom Cockerham, I will be your host now and forever and I'm very uh, excited to be joined tonight by my good friend Jai Wilson. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show and hi to you and hi to your listeners. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I think we're going to have a big talk tonight about a lot of different subjects kind of looking at um, the work you've done in union spaces and policy advising and also your work in as a a local councillor. And I guess throughout this chat, we want to maybe get some clarity over some key, um, I guess, concepts involved in these things. We kind of, we talked a little bit about like a 101 kind of discussion on unions, um, politics as well and so we'll probably split the episode up into a few sections beginning with um like a discussion of union work of the politics around that and also of uh the role more broadly of the labor party in australia today so jai i think first question i have for you and i'm sure we'll kind of go off on a lot of tangents why do you think people might feel overwhelmed by the idea of engaging in politics nowadays? Well, that's a that's a huge question to start with, but a really important one, I guess. Um, a lot of people feel disengaged from politics, maybe because they think their voice or their opinion doesn't matter, or they don't think that they have any pathway to meaningfully contributing to change in our society or, or within the political sphere. Um, I think there are a lot of forces in society too that uh, encourage people not to be involved. I think, um, you know, the idea of a compliant and apathetic uh, populace um, Mm. serves the interests of those people who uh, do get to make decisions and who are in charge of not only politics but industry as well and, and the media as well. So... Um, yeah, look, I think there's there's a lot of maybe personal and societal reasons that all blend together to to lead people to feel either like they can't make a difference or it's not worth trying. Yeah, I, I think this whole like idea of reflexive impotence of kind of not doing anything because you don't think there's any point in doing anything and that serves to kind of keep that cycle rolling. Um, I was watching a movie the other day or a documentary series by Adam Curtis um, called The Century of the Self and kind of talking about how uh, democratic subjects have been uh, kind of turned into consumers rather than political participants and taught that sort of maybe true self-actualization or happiness is sourced in the, the products they consume, not in kind of engaging in, in actual political change. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think it, it might even go a little bit further than that as well. Um, I'm showing my age here, but I I was a child during the Reagan and the Thatcher years. Ooh, and, yeah. uh, and I got to, to see how all of that unfolded. And, you know, the Reagan and the, Reagan and the Thatcher years sort of ushered in a new era of neoliberalism, which, you know, I'm hoping we're witnessing its death throes at the moment, but um, it, it's still a very strong and potent ideology mm. in a lot of power centres. But... What you saw with the Reagan and the Thatcher era in the in the eighties was 
I guess, a push towards individualism. And mm. there's a quote which uh, I haven't got before me and I might butcher, but, um, you know, Thatcher sort of famously retorted to the Labor Party that there there's no such thing as society. You know, mm. they were talking about a, a greater or a better society and uh, instead of trying to engage with the ideas, she sought to kill the entire concept of society. You know, there's no such thing as society. There's just individual men and women and their families. Yeah. And, and I think that manifested itself um, through the popular culture as well at the time um look and i'm going to go off on a tangent right no, from the outset do. here but uh rave culture um, oh, if, okay. if, if you look at rave culture and and i was around at some of the first underground <laughs> raves that happened in um warehouses just around the corner from here actually in nice. we're in North Perth at the moment so if that rings a bell for anyone uh know that we're thinking of you <laughs> yeah and um the thing that struck me when i went to my very first sort of underground rave um, event happening, uh, doof, whatever they're called, um, was that everyone was dancing by themselves. Oh, um, okay. You know, everyone was sort of in their own bubble and there wasn't any interaction with, uh, I guess, either the DJ or, or with other people in the dance floor space. Everyone was sort of dancing to the beat of their own drum <laughs> and, and I think that's maybe an expression of this idea that, you know, there's no such thing as a society. We're all just individuals. It's, um... You know, we're all living in our own subjective universes and, um, yeah, and I, th I think we see echoes of that rippling through the popular culture to this day. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because, like, I think really only over the past few months or years have I kind of grappled with the idea that individualism might not be an inherently good thing because going up through high school and primary school even, like, it was encouraged that, like, the phrase you said, going to the beat of your own drum, that was a good quality. That was something that indicated you were uh, creative or um, curious. And I guess it's, and obviously that can be true, but it seems like it's all um, connected to maybe a wider discussion over what makes happy and good people <laughs> well that's right and, and what makes happy and good people in a, in a functioning society as well and i think sort of to go back to your previous question about you know why why might people feel overwhelmed um it could be because they're asking questions along the lines of what can i do mm. what what is it that i could possibly do and instead of thinking about it as what can i do they need to make a shift in my personal opinion to what can we do mm. uh, and it's the we against the I um, it, which is where collectivist politics socialism if yep. we're allowed to use that word yeah, no, unionism uh, all of these movements uh, come from the strength of the we mm. and that requires people at some level to to supplicate themselves to a collective yeah to kind of give themselves over to yeah to this maybe scary but ultimately uh um, an act of love <laughs> towards well, others and towards the self. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in doing so you have to give up a bit of yourself or you have to give up a bit of the purity of your own position, or you have to give up maybe some priorities that you have, um, and to seek instead to, uh, find compromise mm. uh, with others. And that, that's a tricky thing to do, especially if culture has been telling you your whole life that, you know, you're special precious and unique snowflake yeah. <laughs> all of that hurts yeah <laughs> very much so um i i want to get into the um unionism subject in a second but um something you mentioned about the the neoliberal turn under well i guess sort of for the west under thatcher and reagan um 
I guess in some stuff I've read recently and heard in other discussions, um, Australia was kind of a bit later to that party. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what's in store for us if we kind of look at America and England. They had their kind of shift maybe like half a century ago now. Yeah. What do you think we're in store for in Australia? Yeah, well, um, just picking up one of the other threads that I'm sure we'll go into later on too uh, around unions and unionism, I think the 1970s were probably the high watermark of uh, union power and union strength in the English-speaking world mm. um, as a whole. And um, after that, you had the 80s and in the UK and the United States, you've got um, Reagan and Thatcher, um, pushing a very sort of strong ideological brand of neoliberalism and going after union power mm. as a way of pushing their agenda. And in Australia, I think we were slightly shielded from some of the, the worst effects of that because we had the Hawke government and the Keating government through the 80s and, and most of the early 90s as well. And, you know, there there are strong and legitimate criticisms to be had for the Accord. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of uh, my comrades in the Labor movement have very strident criticisms of the Accord um, and the effect that the Accord had on... Uh, union strength in Australia, but could, sorry, could you just clarify what the accord is? In wow, this instance? Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. Um, so the accord was, I guess, a compact, uh, a grand agreement that was struck between the Australian move, union movement and the Commonwealth government, and it was to seek to do a couple of things. One was to keep um, wage growth in check, um, but the the end goal of that was to keep inflation in check because mm. um, inflation destroys the value of people's bank savings. Um, it destroys the value of their pay increases. It puts instability in you know, people's household budgets, all the rest of it. So the aim was to keep inflation in check, keep wages in check, but um, in exchange for that, there were social dividends that mm. were returned back to the people, uh, Medicare, for example, okay. um, superannuation, for example, uh, you know, uh, social welfare system that sought to provide um, parenting and family payments and, and cover off all of those circumstances people find themselves in in which they aren't in control of their own budgets um so yeah it was a a grand deal between the union movement and government in order to i guess spread as broadly as possible the benefits of collective action um and so that's why i think neoliberalism didn't sort of really ramp up in australia until the 90s mm, um, yes that's kind of what i that sort of the mid 90s was where our shifts yeah. kind of started to take effect yeah and certainly the howard government um ushered in a whole <laughs> sort of suite of policies that had already been in place in england and the united states for a decade by then yeah, as bringing well. us into the, the 21st century well that's right do you think we're heading in the same direction in terms of um, kind of decline? Well, I guess it's a pretty bleak question, but it seems like there's been a decline in America and the UK to some degree over the past sort of five years, decade. Well, I mean, since the 2000s, really. In the number of people that are members of unions, for example? Well, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, I think the reality is, is that it's probably only about 10%, if that, of the American workforce would be unionised. And it's, 
small pockets, small industries that are highly unionised, surrounded by a great sea of completely ununionised mm. industries. So the Teamsters, for example, are still strong. Um, Hollywood is one of the great um, unionised workforces in Those the world. Those really need it, yeah. That's right. Um, and you have very high levels of unionisation in there, but, you know, Australia doesn't have as lower levels yet, but that's certainly been the long-term trend. Because mm, I... Uh, Again, um, just thinking back to my first experience with unions, kind of going into the workforce, I guess, like almost 10 years, well, like six or seven years ago now, and kind of seeing on applications, like, do you want to be a part of the union for whatever this uh, industry is, whether it was like just retail or teaching? And my kind of gut reaction was like, oh, why would I need to do that? Um, mm. And obviously that's been informed by a certain, uh, the way I went to school and studied why yeah. do you think that could be a, a dominant theme because it, it certainly doesn't seem like that's um at odds with what a lot of people might think no and you know the why question um is a very important one and it's one that unions and the union movement as a whole need to have a really good answer for mm. it's not enough just to expect that people will join um, there needs to be a compelling argument that's made again and again um, through each generation um, and you know i think you can start by looking at the past and so you can say well what did the world look like prior to unions well um, we had a, a pure and full expression of capitalism. We got to see what capitalism looks like um, without a union movement and what it looks like is 10-year-old kids working in coal mines because mm. they can get into the little crawl spaces that an adult can't. What it looks like is 10-year-old girls working on cotton gins for mm. 12 hours a day. What it looks like is slavery um, because, you know, the only thing cheaper than a... A completely dependent and broken worker is a slave, um, and so uh, what it looks like is colonialism. Yeah. You know, this is, I think, to to understand a full and pure expression of what capitalism is, we have to look back to the eighteen hundreds um, and to see it in full flight, and to see that um, capitalist nations will. Uh, enslave is probably too strong a word to use but you know we can go into that their own populace uh, and then uh, in order to achieve growth seek to expand and enslave other populations as well in the yeah. service of profit and you know my own family history uh, for example my mother's mother's family was six generations in India mm. and they went to India as a part of the army for the East India Company. Now, this is a private corporation. This yeah. is, uh, that was allowed to have its own army, that was allowed to have its own military school, that was allowed to wage war uh, in its own right. This is, this is unregulated capitalism mm. in its purest expression. Um, and I guess what we saw after the Second World War um, was... Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nauru taking their country back, saying thanks very much, English. <laughs> we no longer We've require your here. services. We'll be all right now. See you later. Um, that part of my family uh, having to hop on boats very quickly, uh, refugees, mm. uh, you know, leaving to the four corners of the English-speaking world. Um, you know, undoing hundreds of years of sort of colonial um, occupation of of India purely to increase the profits and the quality and the standard of living of uh, England and its colonies. Yeah, and specifically, you know. I guess, a select group within that 
category of, of English people. Well, exactly. Yeah. The, and those, not, not, a, not the majority by any stretch. No, those who own the means of production. Um, I've strayed a fair bit away from your question. No, that's all good. No, I, I think um, maybe let's, we'll come back to the unions topic then. So yeah. I guess maybe start by telling us what, what your role in unions has been. Um, maybe some insights or some, I guess, the 101. What, what can you tell us? Uh, sure. Look, I, I've got a, a cultural and a familial disposition towards unionism. My um, maternal grandfather uh, was a life member of the Brewers and Bottle Yard Workers Union. Uh, when he retired, he got the gold watch from the union, <laughs> He uh, the whole the whole thing. Uh, my paternal grandfather was a merchant seaman, uh, ship's captain, lifelong member of the Australian Maritime Officers Union. Um, they come from a an era where you had one job and then you retired. Um, maybe mm, you sounds, had, yeah. <laughs> maybe you had two. It's sad, very sad that that's uh, yeah. kind of faded away. It has, yeah. I guess it's preserved maybe for some professions these days, but even then people change professions yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, look, I, I grew up in a in a family where um, being an active member of your union was just the default setting. So mm. that, that was probably the first thing that made it easy. But even then, um, I started working at the age of 14 doing you know retail trolley boy stuff uh, yeah. all the rest of it um was never a member of the union had a couple of jobs in the construction industry was never a member of a union but i had um what we like to call a radicalizing experience <laughs> um, and i think a lot of people who are active union members um, have had their own radicalizing experience of of some kind so for me i was working for um, some builders, I won't name them. They were in what they call the cottage industry, which is making houses, a largely ununionized or now completely ununionized sector of the construction industry. And uh, we were putting up ceilings. And uh, my experience of that was um, nasty and brutish. Uh, you know, my pay was irregular. Um, there wasn't any sort of guarantee of hours. I was treated as a casual, even though I was a full-time. If they didn't have work, then I didn't get paid. Um, and all of these things I kind of sucked up because, you know, we're going through a little bit of a recession at the time. Um, and it wasn't until they got a job on a union construction site <laughs> that I saw the contrast so instead of being in a workplace where there's rubbish and building materials from all of the previous trades scattered everywhere uh, I went into a place that was swept clean uh, many times a day all of the leads were electrical leads were up on stands so they were out of the way of water or, or trip hazards there was a an air-conditioned donger where people could sit and, and have their lunch um, in the shade and in an air-conditioned environment rather than sitting on a brick in the sun. Um, uh, you you could put food in a pie warmer. And I, I looked around and thought to myself, oh, it, it, it doesn't have to be the way that it was. And so uh, there was a shop steward on site and he 
came to me and said, you're new here, where's your ticket? And I said, I haven't got one. Uh, where do I sign up? Because, you know, it seemed to me that I had found the promised land. <laughs> um, and so I joined the union there and then, uh, thinking that, you know, this would be my life um, ever after. And the next day I got terminated hmm. because, unbeknownst to me, the being a union member and being on union site meant that they had to pay me the going market rate for my labor rather than ah. what it was that I had accepted up until that point. Seemed, yeah, it's quite unfair of you to spring that on them, I guess. <laughs> That's right. How, how dare I know the value of my labor and ask for it? Um, so they decided that working on union sites was not for them and um, because my eyes had been opened to mm. the contrast uh, that I was no longer a good fit for them and so I got sacked for joining the union. Um, now, that is against the law. Mm. Uh, it's not something that I pursued at the time. I was still yeah. sort of in my late teens. Uh, I don't think I'd turned 20 by then. Um, but that was the radicalising moment for me mm. to know that um, there was such a stark contrast between the health and safety and the workplace conditions of union workplaces and the health and safety and workplace conditions of non-union workplaces. Mm. The, the, the contrast was striking and also that there was behaviour that was so self-serving amongst employers that, um, you know, instead of making... Um, a lot of profit, they were just going to make a good amount of profit off my labour. Uh, that was too much for them. And so yeah. it was best to, to send me on my way. So that, that was probably the start of my journey. And, and ever since then, I've always sought to be an active union member in any workplace that I've been in. Um, and that's taken me to a few interesting places. Yeah, well, well um, we'll get to those in a second, but I think it's it's very interesting because I think the image we get in a lot of films and TV shows, um, and I... I feel very certain this is not by accident is that kind of unions are almost this like pseudo organized crime kind of thing against uh, against legitimate uh, good private business owners just trying to do their work and it seems like uh, very much the the binary may fall the other way <laughs> to some degree well that's right and, and you say it's not by accident and you know even uh, the ABC will use the phrase union boss mm. instead of union leader or or union secretary you know there's there's no attempt made to um, recognize the fact that these are elected positions mm. that these are positions of leadership it's yeah. no it's it's union boss it's like taking a word from the enemy and then attaching it as as a way of legitimizing um, the democratic nature of, of what a union is yeah uh, you know union thug um, see so these are all terms and people will go unions, like they're all the same and so sometimes if I'm at a barbecue and just a note to your listeners don't invite me to one of your barbecues because <laughs> I have a habit of wrecking them by doing this sort of thing so people go oh unions and I go oh, which union oh uh, yeah, yeah unions oh, what, <laughs> what you mean the, the nurses union are you talking about or the the Australian Maritime Officers Union what uh, oh well you know and it's that same sort of thing reductive thinking that it underpins racism it's, yeah yeah oh they're all the same and it, and it comes also i think from a position of ignorance too because uh, if i make it sort of past two minute conversation with these people i'll say well name five unions for me just off the top of your head there's 45 affiliated unions name five mm. they can't and i guess like invariably like unless someone is part of the 
kind of the business elite um, unions would seem to kind of work in their favor, um, but there still seems to be this kind of acting against your own interests because apparently thugs is um, the correct descriptor, even though they may even be able to help that person themselves. Yeah, look, I I think working people, um, and I use that phrase as broadly as possible. When I say working people, I mean anyone who has to work Mm. um, in order to put food on their table. Um, There are very few people who can just sit back and enjoy the flow of capital from, you know, inherited or or self-built capital. But, you know, working people as a whole um, have been sold a three-card trick. Um, They've been taught to um, fear unions Mm. as a generic concept. Um, They've been taught um, to second-guess themselves and their fellow workers so that they um, have to act as an individual in their own Mm. personal best interest. Um, And then they've been demotivated or demotivated to participate in politics as well. So, you know, they are... um, autonomous human beings but in many ways um, choices are removed from them Um, and I think this is bad for society (laughs) and and I'd like to see it maybe not necessarily go back to the 1970s but maybe evolve into a new form of um, collective action Mm. that is based on the we rather than the I. Okay and I guess on that note you've you've had some more I guess formal involvement with unions over the years what kind of shape has that taken? Yeah so um, I worked for five years as an organizer and industrial officer for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and um, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union has a long and illustrious uh, history. Um, it is an amalgamation of potentially a dozen unions over the years um, in a range of industries from printing through to welding, boiler making, fitting and turning, um, manufacturing, automotive building, uh, quite a broad coverage. Uh, but the original core parts of the union existed uh, in England before they came to Australia and existed uh, before unions were legal. Mm. Um, and so the printing division of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union is a, is a great example of that. Um, the printers are probably one of the earliest industries to have unionised. They um, retain some archaic language, um, which speaks to that history of existing at a time before being in a union or unions being legal. They refer to the branches of the printing union as chapels, and they refer to the the delegates um, as either the father of the chapel or the mother of the chapel. And... Um, for people who don't know the history, it was because the only safe place where people could meet and have union meetings was inside the church because Mm. to do so outside of the church um, ran the risk of being belted and and arrested by the cops. And so they would go and hide in the churches and organise from there. And so that's why the chapel and the mother of the chapel and the father of the chapel sort of remains as language attached to, to the printing division. Anyway, I um, no, uh, it just made me think of um, the John Carpenter movie They Live, where a lot of the kind of the organising that happens within this like sort of homeless encampment happens within the church, and that's where they store all their paraphernalia, and um, which in the case of that film is glasses that help you see 
that uh, that certain news commentators and politicians are in fact an occupying alien force. Um, right. So I guess we see that. Yeah, the the um the roots carrying forward. Yeah. Okay, and so, so yeah, yeah. So I, I I got a job working for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union as an organizer, and um, it, it's it's a unique and interesting job. Essentially, you're employed by the members to help them uh, collectively bargain in their workplaces. I guess that's the the sort of the simple part of the job is is when uh, workplace agreements, enterprise agreements, union collective agreements, employee agreements, whatever you want to call them in the different jurisdictions, are up for negotiation. It's um, tricky for an employee to sit there at the table or across the table from an employer, uh, the boss, and um, and say what needs to be said mm. because they have to have an ongoing relationship with them. So it's easier to, to hire in an actor, uh, someone who can put the position of the group um, rather um, concisely and bluntly um, and handle all of the paperwork that goes along with that. So, um, you know, it, it, it involved... Uh, when I was doing that work, it was at the time um, under John Howard's work choices, so-called work choices <laughs> uh, laws, which prevented um, union organisers from going into workplaces. So it meant uh, we didn't have to meet in the churches, but um, I'd have to turn up at a workplace before the, the start of the day and in manufacturing that 6am, um, have meetings out on the grass, find out what's going on, um, what the workers um, wanted in the bargaining process and report back to them on how negotiations were going. Um, and incidental in that was having the sorts of conversations uh, with the non-union members about why it was in their best interest, their own selfish personal interest mm. to join and... Uh, to stand with their fellow workers because there was strength in numbers. They were going to get a better outcome by standing in solidarity mm. um, with their fellow workmates. And um, so I've had that conversation a thousand times over um, in a thousand different settings. And then that work evolved into... Um, being an industrial officer, which is doing representations in the um, Industrial Relations Commission as it was then, and then the Fair Work Commission as it became, uh, and also exposed me to representing workers in unfair dismissal cases mm. as well, and uh, hundreds of workers who'd been sacked for a number of reasons, um, some to be fair. Uh, were their own doing um, and others were because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or they'd caught their boss on a really bad day and you know working through the process of getting justice for them mm. um, so yeah I, I did about five years of that and so just when you say um, like representing to those various committees what what does that involve is it kind of like you you put together a case for something that you're you're arguing for on the behalf of the employees and it gets discussed like how does the process unfold well under the laws as they were at the time um, john howard made it almost impossible to take 
industrial action. Um, you know, I believe a fundamental right that any working person has is to withdraw their own labour. If they are in a circumstance where they don't feel safe or they feel like they're being abused or they feel like they're being uh, neglected, then they should have the right to say, well, I withdraw what is mine, which is my labour, until mm -hmm. such time as this problem is remedied. That, however, is not the law. Uh, what the law is, uh, what the law that I was working under at the time said was the only time it is legal to take industrial action is when your agreement has expired and you can demonstrate that you have been genuinely trying to reach agreement with the employer and notwithstanding your demonstrable attempts to genuinely try and reach agreement, uh, you are unable to come to um, agreed terms with the employer and you've had a secret ballot conducted by the Australian Electoral Commission specifically authorising particular types of industrial action uh, and then you've given three clear days working notice to the employer, mm. then you can strike. I then, lost count of all the loop, of all the hoops you got to jump through. Well, <laughs> so like eight or nine. <laughs> well, exactly. Of varying degrees of difficulty. And yeah, and probability. But what I worked out very quickly is that it it created a very narrow and predictable path. Mm. And so what I was able to teach working people is to say, you're just begging at the moment. You've, you're only going to see the third best offer from the employer because they have no reason to show you their best offer. Yeah. You, you are currently begging. You don't even have the right to take protected industrial action, let alone uh, the ability to hurt their position. So if you're happy with the third best offer that you get out of the, out of the boss, that's fine by me. Let me know. This is what the offer is on the table. But if you want to see the next best offer, you need to go through this administrative process and jump all of these hurdles in order to just win yourself the legal right to take industrial action. Mm. At that point, you'll see their second best offer because they know, oh, well, it's a theoretical possibility now. And okay. then I was able to say, but if you want to see their best offer, then withdraw, their la withdraw your labour cause economic pain and hardship to the employer, make them understand that they profit off you, not the other way around, mm. uh, and that if they want you to work, uh, that they have to meet you on just terms. Yeah. And so um, it became, I guess, a bit of a process where uh, every single agreement I was going into, we were taking industrial action. And ironically for John Howard, the levels of industrial disputation uh, went up mm. under his legislation. Oh, it kind of, yeah. That's right. <laughs> it, it put in place these, these guardrails that um, made it not only predictable but easy to explain and workers could very quickly see that there was a logic to this mm. that okay well of course we're not going to get the best offer all we're doing is begging well let's let's go through that process and then the other thing under howard's legislation um you could only participate if you're a union member and so so all right <laughs> if if you want to get a good offer here you're going to have to join the union yeah well, i guess we can see the just fundamental need for solidarity like if it gets if it does go all the way through the process then that's going to be the the fulcrum but well that's right and it kind of opened up um a whole lot of 
workers in the industry as I was organising's eyes to the strength and and um, power of solidarity, but ironically through a prism of self-interest <laughs> uh, and, in, and individual self-interest, and and maybe subconsciously I knew that that was the best way to go: meet people where they're at and then yeah, take, take exactly. them on a journey. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Um, I guess deep dive into the why unions are worthwhile and I guess kind of dispelling some of the um, the rhetoric that exists around them which I guess from a, a little bit of careful reading we can see uh, has an agenda and is not in fact neutral commentary. Yeah look and, and what I'd say to just to, to close on that is um, there's a difference between having a union membership card in your pocket and being a unionist in my head and mm. um, being a passive union member might be good for the revenue of an organisation, but being actively involved, having discussions with your workmates about problems in your workplace, um, having discussions with your workmates about what's fair and just and reasonable, um, that's that's the work of unionism. It's the idea that uh, by ourselves we are weak, but together we are stronger than everyone and everything mm. and uh, that requires a leap of faith but I think the evidence is there to show that um, if people do take that leap of faith if they do back each other up if they do support each other then they're going to get better outcomes and you know at the end of the day that's what we're here for if we are going to be wage slaves if we're <laughs> going to sell our labor on the open market um, let's get the best deal we can let's put the thumb on the scale in our favor yep okay well i think um we've talked a lot about the i guess the various shortcomings of various liberal regimes over the years um the labor party though that surely that uh <laughs> they must be doing things for us and if not why not what what's uh What's your take on the Labor Party as it stands in Australia? Okay, well, I'll, I'll make a transition yeah. to the to the Labor Party by also sort of just briefly touching on um, good unions and bad unions. And I know in the left circles there's a, a lot of discussion about what constitutes a good union and what constitutes a bad union, whether it's militant, whether it achieves good outcomes for its members or not. Uh, and I think a lot of those criticisms, um, especially, say, for example, criticisms about the the shoppies, the SDA, are somewhat misplaced. Um, unions are as strong as their members. And if the membership of a union is scattered, short-term, casual, transitory, and that people maybe don't see themselves working there forever, they're studying, they're going on to better things, there's not a lot that the leadership of the union can do with that. Um, but if a union membership is active, strong, engaged, um, then the union leadership is able to get better results. Um, and I think the same is true of political parties mm. as well. Very you know, seamless transition. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> the, the Labor Party is the creation of the union movement. Um, unions spent a lot of time trying to engage with members of parliament and you know if we go back to the the start of the commonwealth of australia the two major political forces were the protectionist party and the free trade party and you know there were i guess classical liberals in both sides and what the unions would often do was try and find some classical liberals who might be sympathetic to their point of view and encourage them to put legislation forward that would make life easier for working people 
And what they worked out very quickly was that that wasn't an effective strategy. And if they wanted to do, um, to get the outcomes for their members that could only be achieved through legislation or through government expenditure rather than industrial organising, that they would need to have their own political party. Mm. Um, And so, you know, the... I think the first two prime ministers of Australia were from the Protectionist Party. Um, and then you've got, you know, the Free Traders as another block. Uh, Labor unions banded together very quickly, formed the Australian Labor Party, and in the space of one or two elections went from being in the same position the Greens are at now, which is being a, a minor party or a balance of power party, mm. to being the major party, um, Chris Watson being the first Labor Prime Minister, if my memory serves right. And the effect of that was that the Free Trade Party and the Protectionist Party, who were up until that point ideological enemies, (laughs) banded together and formed a new party because their real enemy was the class enemy, that they had more in common being gentlemen and uh, (laughs) upper upper middle class landowners than than they did uh, with the Wharfies and the Shearers and... And the people that were piling in and the railway workers that were piling into parliament. I'm uh, glad they embraced solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, um, yes, there are no ideological differences so mm. great that would put aside from class solidarity for the <laughs> for the ruling class. So, yeah, you, you have this party that forms and very quickly rises to ascendancy and... Uh, such that in in the early part of Australia's history, there are two groupings. There's the Labor Party and then there's the anti-Labor parties, Mm. all of the various collections of anti-Labor parties until they sort of consolidated under the Liberal Party under Menzies. Um, And the Labor Party is an imperfect beast and has always been because it seeks to govern, it seeks to represent a majority of Australian people, it seeks to bring together a wide and disparate group of interests. A bewildered herd. <laughs> in, indeed. Um, and and for that very reason, it is um, a broad church, if, mm. if we're going to use some of these cliches. Um, and for years and years, there have been very strong ideological differences within the Labor Party, but the one binding interest being... Um, to protect the rights of unions to organise workers for the benefit of working people. And um, the central agreement being that as long as we are solid on union rights and workers' rights, as long as we're solid on social welfare for um, people in need and creating opportunity, then we can agree to disagree on social issues. Hmm. Now... Fast forward to the 2020s, um, social... Things have never been better. (laughs) Well, that's right. But I think social issues have come to the fore now. And there's kind of, amongst the greater left of, of politics, more of an emphasis on where people land on particular social policy issues mm, yeah, and like the rise of identity politics as a kind of a, a key player in uh, political discourse thatcher's bastards <laughs> you know the the individual and the expression of the individual self through politics of the self and 
I've struggled with that and I continue to struggle with it. I, I you know, I don't want to dismiss it. I want to seek to understand it, but it, where it comes from for me is a very individual um, position and that to me leads to a weakness in position because if everyone's individuals in a in a broad coalition of social interests then there's no class or economic glue to hold that mm. together and, and i mean a broad coalition that can't easily agree on things is kind of a, a coalition in name only i guess well e- exactly and you know even um, amongst some of the fringe interests then they break down into factions and sections as well with people sort of debating very nuanced differences which outsiders might not even understand yeah so getting getting back to the labor party yeah it's it's always a compromise beast and if people look at the labor party as trying to find some sort of purity or um, ideological sort of utopian consistency they're not going to find it and they never will because it's about seizing control of decision making bodies and it's about seizing control of the treasury benches so that you can make concrete changes to laws um, and regulations and so that you can tax and spend in a fair way Um, and lots of compromises get made in the pursuit of getting to that position. Okay, so bearing all of that in mind, I guess um, in Australia at the moment, the Labor Party doesn't seem to be, I guess, the uh, necessarily the fullest expression of the left. I mean, we've got kind of further um, left parties like the Greens or Socialist Alliance. Why do you think Labor could still be uh, the main vehicle towards the kind of change you've talked about? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Thomas, and especially for people who are thinking of getting involved in politics, they might be asking themselves, well, why would I join the Labor Party? Why would I be involved with that when there are other parties that align more closely to um, the individual views that, that people might hold? Um, and that's a really good question. I, I'd start by saying I don't have any enemies to the left. I'm very good friends with um, Alison Zamon, Tim Clifford, um, members of the West Australian uh, Parliamentary Greens. Um, I have a lot of good friends who are activists in Socialist Alliance and I would say that you know I agree on at least 80% mm. of policy issues um, with all of those people and at times find it easier to get along with them than I do <laughs> Uh, with people who are in the party that I've been a member of for 20 years. But um, the main difference I think that we have is one about tactics uh, for their own good reasons. The Tim Cliffords and Alison Zamons of the world have, have chosen to be a part of the Greens and to seek to effect change through that as a vehicle. Um, and uh, comrades in the Socialist Alliance uh, who, who don't have any representation, although uh, there is a very good uh, councillor at the city of Fremantle who is a Socialist Alliance and proud member. Um, but for me, the main aim is to be a part of an organisation that at least in the very near term has a chance at seizing control of the decision-making processes around legislation, around taxation and around expenditure. And 
whether I like it or not, whether anyone likes it or not, the Labor Party is the closest to being able to achieve that at a parliamentary level uh, in Australia at this present time. Now, that may change in the future. Um, and, you know, if the Labor Party ever turned out to be the right-wing party in Australian <laughs> politics and there were um, large other left-wing alternatives, then I think that would be a very good thing for for Australia and the world if, if we mm. found ourselves in that future. But for me, I made the conscious decision to... Um, go as close to the centre of politics as I could handle or stomach, um, which for me is the left of the Australian Labor Party, knowing that that gives me an opportunity to be a part of the change of legislation or the development of um, social programs or the application of taxation systems that lead to social justice, that lead... Um, to the reforms that we need um, to make lives easier for working people. Um, so it is a critical engagement. It always has yeah, been. And a pragmatic, um, I guess, uh, perspective. It, it is. You know, I don't stand the Labor Party. I'm not a <laughs> fanboy of the Labor Party. Um, I am an active member of the Labor Party because I see that as the best tactic and strategy for me personally to be able to advance the views that I hold. Um, and it's not without its disappointments. <laughs> I can um, imagine. Uh, but... You know, I have been able to use my engagement with the Labor Party to affect change and, and to learn some you know, interesting personal lessons about how change works as well. Okay, well, I think we'll, we'll take a break and then we'll come back to maybe looking at some of the, the change you have affected and how uh, the mechanisms through which that has been achieved. So thank you very much, Jai. You're welcome. 